0: Welcome to the latest podcast from Crime Stoppers Victoria. This podcast will take a deep dive into coercive control, which challenges the very definition of traditional family violence and what that looks like. Today, I'm joined by the Assistant Commissioner of Victoria Police, Lauren Calloway, who leads the response for family violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. Lauren, thanks for joining us and let's jump straight in. Can you tell us what exactly coercive control is and how it manifests itself? The
1: term coercive control is used to describe a range of behaviours and tactics that are used by perpetrators of family violence. The purpose of coercive control is to undermine someone's self-worth And to coerce them into doing things that the perpetrator wants them to do. Now, this can look like all sorts of things. Some of the tactics are very varied and they require a great deal of thinking and planning by the perpetrator in order to execute. But I'll give you some examples. Gaslighting is is one that we talk about a lot, controlling the household finances. Determining every aspect of a victim's life, from what they can wear to what where they can work or whether they can work, what meals are to be served, who they can see, using threats—not just of violence, but access to children and friends, isolating people from their networks and families, constant put downs, changing between being really abusive and being really loving, so to keep the victim's emotional stability constantly off balance lying and being deceitful, using children against the victim, suggesting that the victim might have a mental illness, or spreading stories about the victim. Now, none of those things that I've described would be traditional physical family violence. But together, they create a pattern that undermines the person's ability to feel confident about themselves.
0: Obviously, that all sounds absolutely horrible. The main question I have is why would anyone stay in that sort of relationship and what difficulties could they have trying to leave?
1: Look, I think people stay in the relationship because the person that is committing coercive control isn't like that all the time. No one starts off that way either. In fact, some of the behaviours like getting lots of text messages, lots of attention, being love bombed, that's another description, all of that in a positive context, would be things that people experience normally when they start a relationship. But it's when it starts to become controlling and sinister and starts to make the victim-survivor question their own sense of normality, and this happens over a long period of time. So often victim-survivors will realise after a long period, actually, I'm in an abusive relationship. It didn't start off this way. It's not this way all the time. But there are some elements of this relationship that are very toxic.
0: It's a great answer. And I'm just wondering, when a victim realizes they're in this sort of relationship, what makes it so difficult for them to leave?
1: It's funny because I get asked this question a lot, you know, as though someone might wake up one morning and realize they're in an abusive or coercive controlling relationship. And then that's the beginning. And that's, that's the day that they leave. But there's lots of reasons why victims don't. And it can be different for every victim survivor. But I think what everyone would have in common is the feeling of being somewhat trapped. If a perpetrator has been really manipulative and clever at committing coercive control, they've actually set up many reasons why the person couldn't leave. So they'll be already cut off from their social networks and from their friends and family they probably won't have full access to money or the means with which they could just walk out the door. So if you take away the financial means and the social support means, then it's going to be a really difficult decision on where they'll go and what they'll do. I also think that victim survivors would be staying because of their own safety planning, and this is something that doesn't often get discussed. It's not all about their helplessness they've actually made a calculated decision themselves to manage the risk. And sometimes that risk is easier to be managed if the perpetrator is in view and they can control certain things. Look, when it comes to children, I think it would be really difficult for a woman to walk out the door with small children. And even if the children aren't the primary target of abuse, they will know that the perpetrator will ultimately still have contact with them because they're the father of their children. So there's going to be other things in play that means that to have no contact is not an option.
0: The entire situation sounds really toxic From a policing perspective, how big of a challenge has it been moving from tackling the traditional physical form of family violence to this more mental and controlling form of it?
1: Well, I think Victoria Police is really well-placed to deal with coercive control. First and foremost, in Victoria, we have the broadest legislation that covers all definitions of family violence and also goes to speaking directly to the emotional and psychological abuse and controlling behaviours. So we train police to recognise non-physical forms of family violence. One of the ways that we also reinforce to police to think about those features of family violence is through our family violence report. It's 39 questions. There are jealous, controlling behaviour type questions within the report. So not only does it take a record of what's happened, but it also provides police with a risk assessment and asks them to think about factors that may be contributing to a picture of what's going on in the family, not just the incident of that, that night. Another question asks, has there ever been any history of family violence between the parties? So again, we're not focusing on just the thing that may have called the police on that I- incident, but what is what is the pattern of behaviour that's going on behind the scenes? Having said that, I do think police are always open to learning more about the dynamics, the power dynamics that are, are going on in family violence situations. And not all not all family violence matters present themselves as a woman as the victim, man as the as the perpetrator. Uh, we know that at least 30% of all our family violence incidents involve a different dynamic, whether that be LGBTIQ couples, whether that be elder abuse, adolescence family violence, abuse between a carer and a person with a disability. And if you think about each of those scenarios, they would also lend themselves to coercive controlling behaviour. For example, in the LGBTIQ community, it might be that the person is threatening their partner with outing them to friends and family that do not know their status.
0: Again, that just sounds like a really awful situation to be in. Now, I understand perpetrators are using different tactics with technology to control the victim. Uh, What have you seen in terms of technology and its impact in this area?
1: Well, this is definitely one of the trends that we're seeing more of. That's not to say that serious physical family violence isn't still occurring, and it does, but we're starting to see trends of perpetrators being a little bit more subtle, a little bit more abusive in the background through the use of technology-facilitated abuse or surveillance techniques, and that is the installation of software on a victim survivor's phone or devices, uh, stalking behaviours, the ability to surveil from afar as far as having access to information that they have stored on on their phone or, or programs that they use, even the purchase of listening devices and tracking devices used to be something that was pretty difficult to do if you were just a layperson. You You needed some technological expertise to do it, but not these days. It's cheap and it's easy to access. You can get it on the internet or you can go shopping for it and easy to install. You don't need a lot of special knowledge at all. And I think that is one of the ways that perpetrators are being able to keep their victim in view all the time.
0: So obviously these perpetrators are using the ease of technology these days in a really negative way. Can you tell us a little bit more about how they're contacting the victims with technology?
1: They're doing a few things. They're sending lots of text messages. So they are um, a lot of the time breaching intervention orders or personal safety orders. Sometimes those messages aren't even abusive. They're just harassing in nature, or there's lots of messages. What we know, they also do surveillance um, through tracking devices and and lots of those GPS-related programs that are on your phone so they can see where you are and what you're up to. One of the other things that um, came out of a recent, uh, the banking inquiry, the messages that you use to do a banking transaction, you know, you've got a certain amount of characters. Well, we found family violence perpetrators using that messaging system as a way to reach out to victim survivors to do one cent transactions. That's another thing that they might do, which really sends a message to the person if they've got to exchange money over children, or they'll use it to say things like tell mummy I love her or, you know, or offensive messages. So that's another way, whatever way that the perpetrator can show the victim survivor that you may have left me, but I can still Get a message to you, or have some influence over your life. They will do
0: it. It's all very sneaky, and not the sort of behaviour you'd, you'd expect from someone in a normal relationship. Does this sort of behaviour come under the definition of stalking?
1: I think a lot of that behaviour absolutely fits into the definition of stalking. Now, the legislative definition is, you know, talks about design designed to put a person in fear or apprehension and i think a lot of victim survivors when they when they are messaged a lot or contacted they they might struggle to think about am i actually in fear but the mere fact that the behavior is unwanted attention it's obsessive in some regards. You know, how many messages a day is an acceptable message? Now, if we asked a teenager, they might say 500. But for normal people, it's not. that's not the way you communicate with someone. You don't bombard them with messages. Or if someone says, I want you to stop, and they don't stop, well, that constitutes behaviour that could be considered stalking. Um, I think One of the one of the features that we're noticing now with people in family violence situations is that the ex partner group is now the largest group of people that we are involved in from a police perspective. So this idea that you're in a violent relationship or a controlling relationship and you leave and that's the end of the violence or the control, well that's actually not the case. And I think in the past. If you left someone and you lived, you know, moved to different suburbs or you moved into different social circles and then you don't see them anymore, that would be the end of the matter. But today we can actually stay in people in contact with people all over the world really easily. And um and you, it's not helpful to say to people, Well, get off social media or change your phone number. That that doesn't work. That people's phones and their social media lives are very much connected to how they how they live. And we can't ask people to undo that. And unfortunately, that's the same technology that perpetrators will abuse to constantly find out what their victim survivor is up to.
0: How big of an issue is stalking for Victoria police?
1: It's not a new offence. We've always um, been responding to and investigating stalking crimes. But what we're seeing more and more is that it happens roughly around 50% from the result of intimate partner relationships but also strangers who might be barely acquainted. Now, stalking is made up of a pattern of behaviours that can comprise things that would ordinarily be legal. So things like, you know, leaving gifts or messages is not illegal, provided that they're not threatening the recipient. But if you look at it in the context of a pattern of behaviour, sometimes lots of small, somewhat legal acts can actually start causing distress to a stalking victim. And this can be hard for police at times to identify what's normal behaviour and what has crossed that threshold. But I think that the police have a real, a really strong role in helping victim survivors to understand what is what is acceptable behaviour and what is very much unwanted. And someone's personal safety just can't be breached in that way.
0: Can you tell us about any particular incidents you've come across that were really bad? There's
1: a couple of examples, I think, that... that cross over that coercive control and technology facilitated abuse. Um, One of them seems really kind of innocuous, but a new toy for a child that contains an air tag within it. So separated parents might do that. It's actually a way in which they can track where the children are going or an offer to fix the phone that they smashed. And then when they do it, they fix the phone and load spyware onto it. I was talking to Dr. Chelsea Tobin from safe steps and they had a victim survivor come into crisis accommodation who had 16 different forms of spyware on their phone Now that's that's not unusual these days.
0: yeah that definitely shows the insane amount of effort these people are going to to try and maintain this control. Now I just want to move on and speak about the horrible incident with Hannah Clark and, and what happened there so her parents want to criminalize coercive control. We know many states are in the process of doing this already, but what does our legislation say and how does that compare to other states?
1: Our legislation specifically names forms of coercive control, including being emotionally or psychologically abusive, being economically abusive and then also it it covers off a catch-all where it says an abuser in any other way controls or dominates the family member and causes that family member to feel fear for the safety or well-being of that family member or another person. So you can see from that, that's a fairly broad definition. I understand why Hannah's family is pushing for a um, legislative reform under the definition of coercive control, and other states are considering it. So What I draw from that is I think anything that helps us all think about family violence in a non-physical way and also where we think about behaviours that just don't feel right or just don't seem right to us. Sometimes we can get really caught up in the legal definition. Is something a crime or not? But there's a whole group of people out there and not a lot of them um, come to the attention of police. So let's remember too, the police response is based on those um, family violence jobs that we are involved in. But there are many pathways to safety, particularly in Victoria, and you don't need to go to a police officer. So I, th- I think there's many situations where people are experiencing family violence in all forms, and the more that we can understand why they're experiencing it, what ways they can achieve safety in their own circumstances, it doesn't always have to be a call to a police officer, but, of course, When the police officer is called, that's often because we're at the crisis response end of an incident.
0: Including coercive control in family violence is obviously a really big step. Uh, What did police do to work out that coercive control does play such a big part when it comes to family violence?
1: One of the ways that we have got really good at recognising coercive control has been through the Centre for Family Violence that um, Victoria Police has set up. And also we went through a Royal Commission. So there was over 200 recommendations that really went to the heart of how family violence is presenting itself in the community. And as a result of that Royal Commission, we set up the Centre for Family Violence to do training, all the way from constable through to superintendent. So we have put our police officers through risk risk assessment training. The MARAM, the Multi-Agency Risk Assessment Framework, is something that we train to in Victoria Police. As I mentioned before, we have a a family violence report that includes 39 questions, some of them going to the heart of what non-physical family violence is about. So we we are constantly asking our police officers to think more deeply and be more nuanced about what does it look like when you attend a scene? Don't just look for the obvious signs around maybe property damaged, physical abuse. We always have to deal with the safety of all parties at the scene and and make sure that we get help in for anyone who has been hurt. But we need to also listen to victim survivors and ask questions that will make them feel confident to tell us about the other forms of abuse. Bearing in mind that coercive control behaviours can be very embarrassing to reveal. It's, you know, I don't think any woman who wants to talk about the fact that she doesn't have access to money or she has to ask her partner for permission to buy clothes for the children, that is not something you would easily tell a police officer. Some victim survivors won't even tell their closest family and friends the kind of strict conditions that they're living under. But I also often get asked about the the role of bystander. And that is, you know, you can sometimes sense when something's not right with someone close to you. You know, they may not be able to attend events or if plans change, they feel very nervous about telling their partner. So all of us have a role in being open to having a conversation and saying, are you okay? Is this normal? And if we could do one thing, that would be to be someone who you can be, you can sense check what's going on in a relationship with and to get some good advice from.
0: How much progress have we made in terms of recognising coercive control and what is still to come?
1: I think that the issue of coercive control is one that is going to evolve over time. But if I look at the police response today, I think we've come a a long way. 10 years ago, people would consider family violence a private matter. It could be just about an unhappy marriage. You didn't get involved. Well, with 92,000 reports a year, we are being involved and we are getting reports coming through to us. And I think that says a lot about the community's confidence to report to us and know that we will do something. We are issuing thousands of personal safety orders and intervention orders. And I'd like to think that that is driving some some safety outcomes for families because there's definitely a certain group of people that once the police attend or once a solicitor gets involved or they get their court paperwork They do stop and they think, maybe I should cut this out now. It does have an effect, not on everybody. And unfortunately, we have a small group where there are tragic circumstances. Sometimes the police or the family violence sector are not even involved in these cases. But I would like to think that all of this effort is actually making victims safer.
0: It sounds like a lot of work has been done in that sector. Uh, Just in terms of someone that is suffering from coercive control, what advice would you offer them?
1: The first thing I would do is go and talk to a police officer or attend an orange door and have a conversation with someone about what you're experiencing and get that sense check that I talked about as to whether or not that is normal behaviour within a relationship, whether or not it has crossed into a threshold that is actually controlling. Um, That's the first thing I'd say. Um, I also think that you may need to then start thinking about what is your safety plan because coercive control doesn't um, operate in isolation of other more very serious threats of harm and and threats of damage and threats of destroying a person's life. So it would also be prudent to start thinking about, okay, what would this look like if I was actually to get out of this relationship? What sort of things might I have to do and plan for? If someone is close to us who discloses family violence to us, then I think we have to be the, the sort of person that doesn't just hear it once and not expect the person to leave on that day once they've disclosed. It may take six, seven, eight, or nine interventions before they actually decide to leave. And you have to be the kind of support person that's not judgmental, not there to rescue them, but to listen. Provide advice, maybe create an opportunity to mind the children or create some um, reason why they could then go and see a family violence practitioner without their partner knowing. Be that sort of person that's always there. And even if they don't leave on that day, you're still there to support them. And then obviously there are incidents where when the person tells you something that is at that very high end of violence, then calling triple zero is always the way to go.
0: I know you've said previously that it can often take seven or eight interactions with the police before the victim actually leaves. Why is this the case?
1: I think one of the biggest motivations for going back for women at this point in time is financial stability. We're all talking about the cost of living crisis, the pressures from mortgages going up and the, and the housing crisis. If a family doesn't have an alternative to go and, you know, keep employment, have a roof over their heads. We know that the fastest growing group of homeless people are women in their 50s and most are fleeing family violence. So one of the reasons where women stay, I think, is to work out how they're going to go and also have some financial stability if they walk out the door. Because if going out the front door is, is a, a path to sleeping in your car or couch surfing, or becoming homeless, then that's a very legitimate reason to go back to the family home and figure out another way.
0: Yeah, definitely. You would start to weigh up what's worse and it would be a difficult decision. Now, what would your message be to someone who is using coercive control? Stop it,
1: for starters, and then go and get some help from a men's behaviour change program. Um, People like to come up with lots of reasons why um, perpetrators are violent. And lots of excuses around whether it be substance abuse, mental health, um, financial stress, but violence is always a choice. And so I think anyone who, who realises that they are engaging those behaviours, they need help and they need to opt in and get it as soon as possible.
0: Now, gaslighting is a word which is becoming increasingly common online. Often in a not so serious way, but we know it can be a very serious concern that affects people's lives. Uh, What can you tell us about gaslighting?
1: Yeah, I have noticed it's kind of a word of you know of the month at the moment. It came originally from a, a British play that was turned into a film called Gaslight from the 1930s, and in the play. Uh, there was a husband who was mentally, emotion, mentally and emotionally manipulating his wife into believing that she was going crazy. So he was changing the intensity of the gas lamps within the home. So that was the premise of the film and that's where the term came from. So it's really innocuous behaviour. It could be something as simple as accusing someone of, I'll use the example, leaving the butter out. It sounds really silly. But most times if someone said to you, or oh, you left the butter out on the table, you might think, did I? I don't I don't I don't think I did well, or then you think, well, I know I didn't leave it out but so the perpetrator has done it deliberately. What they're trying to do is undermine your sense of self to keep you on edge and always doubt your thinking. Now the reason they do this is because if you do that over time, it makes a person really reliant on the on the abuser for their level of co- treasure your confidence. so you can't even imagine being able to, function without them or make decisions because then after they've gaslit you they will say things oh you know you need me to look after you you're you're mentally unwell how many times have we heard someone describe their partner oh she's crazy so often when police will go to a family violence incident the abuser will meet the officers at the door they'll be calm they'll be coherent they'll be rational and they'll be very compliant and they'll they might you know apologize for wasting the police officer's time and then they'll talk about their partner's mental fragility or their dependence on alcohol or they've you know they've got problems and this is this is how i manage it so all of that can seem really reasonable but what we ask our police to do is to step back Have a look at the entirety of the situation. We may have been called there before. There might be additional information that a family violence worker could give us. What we need to work out is who is most in need of protection. So if the perpetrator is coming across as the good guy, um, we need to look at what may have caused the victim survivor to lash out or done something irrational or be emotionally unstable at the scene because they're at wit's end. We need to work. We need to work through this. We need to think about it. And I'm really pleased to say that police have really risen to the challenge of this complexity in this type of family violence. And we are certainly getting better at it.
0: Yeah, it absolutely sounds like Victoria police are on top of it. Uh, Thanks again, Lauren, for joining us on the podcast. Always great to hear from you. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you. That was Lauren Calloway, who is the Assistant Commissioner for Victoria Police. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing family violence, you can contact Safe Steps on 1-800-737-732. Remember, if it's an emergency, always call 000. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, visit our website at crimestoppersvic.com.au. Music.